Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Thomson Reuters Westlaw Edge and Answer One. Their virtual reception service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to handle inbound calls, schedule appointments, and even respond to emails. Check them out at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. That's answer the number one.com. And now on to the show. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hello and welcome to another episode of the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. I'm Jason Taché, legal affairs writer at the Journal. Today we kick off the 10th anniversary of the Legal Rebels Award. For the past decade, the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels has put the spotlight on those who think outside of the box and push the boundaries of the profession. This year on the podcast, we're going to catch up with some of the original Legal Rebels and get their perspectives on where they've been and where they think the industry is headed. Today, we have Ralph Baxter. He was an inaugural legal rebel in 2009. At the time, he was the CEO and chairman of Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe, and he caught the ABA Journal's attention through his initiatives that took the firm from a domestic California-based law firm to an international heavyweight. Leaving the role in 2013, he's gone on to advise law firms looking to improve their business and legal service practices. He is on the advisory board for LegalZoom. He's a Codex Fellow at Stanford and even ran for Congress this past election cycle. Ralph, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me. So you became a legal rebel because of your focus on process and technology improvements while you were at Oric. Uh, which, which was a definitely a growing firm at the time. So I was wondering for perspective's sake, if you don't mind, give us a little history about what you were working on back in 2009. Well, in 2009, of course, we were dealing with the impact of the financial crisis that affected everybody in, in, the, in the world and certainly in business and in law and, and uh, really saw some of the benefits of some of the innovations we had undertaken uh, at Oric in the years leading up to that crisis. But, but you, we all can remember uh, how devastating uh, the financial crisis was and how much work there was to do. And so that's really my main uh, recollection of that time. Oric was focused on innovation uh, the entire time that I was privileged to serve as its chairman. In fact, I I reasoned the only possible rationale for electing me chairman uh, at the age of 43, back at a time when normally uh, the firms chose much older people to lead and to manage, uh, was that the firm wanted change and it needed it. It was ready for it. And and, uh, change was was our mandate uh, the entire time I was running uh, the firm. So I'm curious to how the recession changed projects you already had uh, going. I I imagine that works in progress became more acute works of necessity because of the the economic pinch. I'm curious to how you recollect that. Well, the financial crisis really did put a spotlight uh, on 
how valuable the changes we already had made were. We had moved our operations center. We'd created actually an independent operations center for the firm. And we'd taken all of the functions, starting with the back office and moving toward the front office, that uh, didn't need to be done in the very expensive locations where we practiced law and put them uh, in a lower cost location in Wheeling, West Virginia. And we did that not only to uh, be economically more efficient by reducing the costs we incurred to deliver service, but also to be able to achieve synergies by putting all of the functions together. Instead of dividing them up in different places around the world, we centralized them so they could work together uh, in greater harmony and, and stimulate better ideas, better thinking, better innovation. And, and that worked great. And as a consequence, we were considerably more efficient when the crisis hit than we would have been had we not done that. So we had, there was a real benefit to that. We also had changed uh, our model for uh, the career paths of associates over the years leading up to, the, to that. Uh, and that made a big difference too. The associates were in position better uh, to add value. The work was allocated, the legal work was allocated better among the associates and the partners than it would have been otherwise. So the crisis had the effect in the marketplace of accelerating change, of putting greater pressure on law firms to be modern, uh, although in the end, it produced changes that were mainly around the edges most of the time. But at Oric, we already had embraced change and, and were trying to be as modern as we could be, and that came in handy. It was a real advantage for us. Something I'm curious about with your perspective, having taken on that role starting in 1990, uh, today the concept of legal innovation is very in vogue. There are more conferences, companies that are building on this narrative around either legal operations or legal technology, but that wasn't so the case in 1990. The ecosystem wasn't nearly what it is today. So I'm curious, who or what was influencing you at that time as you tried to think through the best way to move forward at the firm? Well, the, the genesis of it was what I said. The, the firm turned to me because I had built some things uh, in the firm and, and done some things differently than the conventional ways to do them in the development of our labor and employment practice at Oric. And, and those, we'd grown that practice from a couple of people to one of the market leading practices. And, in, and within that, we'd done it with some innovative ideas about how to staff matters and, and uh, build careers and, and so on. And so I really did think that in choosing me, the firm was wittingly or unwittingly uh, articulating a mission to change in analogous ways uh, across the firm. There weren't a lot of role models back then to follow or listen to. In fact, uh, back at the time of, this, of the legal rebels being launched, I first met uh, Richard Suskind, who has been someone who I have learned a lot from in the intervening years. But, but back in the years leading up to modern times, and back in the time, as you, as you referenced, 1990, we kind of had to make it up as we went along. In fact, one of the reasons we organized the Law Firm Leaders Forum 
which we did in the early 90s, was to create a place for people to come together and talk about the most pressing issues and the opportunities for making uh, legal service better um, in the context of big law firms, because there wasn't really much of a forum for that, and there weren't excellent resources for that. And, you know, when you talk about business uh, innovation in law, most of the conversation that was being generated by American Lawyer Magazine and other, and other sources was about business. It was about being more profitable, being uh, more successful as a business, and less about finding innovative ways to deliver legal service in, in the way that now this, uh, as you say, this vogue relating to innovation now has set the stage. You know, one of my observations about what's happening now is that there's a lot of talk about innovation and there's a lot of uh, creating of roles and, and, and uh, things like that. Um, but there's not nearly as much true innovation in terms of the way uh, legal services delivered in terms of the the models of the uh, large law firms as they organize to deliver legal service and and as a consequence we continue to have a very restless set of clients in the world and we have a very substantial percentage of people who can't even access adequate legal service. We have a long way to go in making real change. Yeah, that's interesting. There's certainly, and I say this as someone in legal media, a lot of talking heads in the space uh, and not a lot of outcome improvements, it seems, especially in the delivery of legal services. I'm curious, just generally speaking, if you see any particular company or firm or improvement style that you think does have traction. Yeah, I do. I see. And it's, it would be an overstatement to say that they're isolated, but there are players here and there making a difference. So perhaps the most fundamental is clock. That is something that has grown to be a very large organization uh, that is an organization of people whose mandate within their businesses is to optimize the way legal service is delivered to major corporate clients in the United States and increasingly around the world. And they really are sincerely and deliberately focused on uh, stimulating change, not only change in the way legal service is delivered, but change in the business models that the providers of legal service, law firms and others, pursue as they organize their resources to deliver legal service. And then there are, there are lots of uh, singular examples in uh, among the, the new entrants into the world of legal service that are uh, making, I think, meaningful headway. It's a little less obvious uh, as to which law firms are, are making uh, progress, but some are. So I have another question about when you left Oregon in 2013 and stepped down as chairman. 
it was reported by Reuters that there was internal criticism at the firm uh, that one of your changes is that you had paid significant salaries to executives that weren't practicing attorneys, and this rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, and I'm curious to your thoughts now, six years later, do you feel like those positions that you created were the right choice for the firm and whether or not you would have done anything differently? Sure. The, what we did at, at Oric was uh, to professionalize the way our firm was run, and we, uh, we empowered professionals who didn't have licenses to practice law uh, to make important decisions in, in leading the operations of the firm and in running other uh, business dimensions of the firm. And, you know, there's in any business story, there are people who can speculate and, and uh, offer their thoughts about what happened. But Oric was a very positive culture the entire time I was uh, privileged to serve as its chairman. And a time came when um, I had done that at least as long as I wanted to. And it was time for a change, and, and, and I moved on to find a, a broader platform for me to continue to contribute to the modernization of, of legal service. When you stepped down as chairman, there was a calling, an initial calling of the herd uh, when the, the new chairman took the position. I'm curious if you, looking back, think that that was a mistake to cut some of those executive positions that you had helped create. No, I, I think that you know any new leader, when I took over, I is going to do things his her way. Uh, when I took over, I did things very differently than my predecessor. And when uh, Mitch Zukli became head of Oric, then uh, he adopted uh, a model that that he thought was best, and he made a fair number of changes. I don't think the changes that in, in the dimension you're talking about were as great as you're suggesting, but uh, he made changes and that was healthy for the firm and it fit to the style of leadership that he wanted to uh, pursue. And I think things are going quite well for Oric as a consequence. So thinking about the the decade that has passed since uh, 2009 when you were originally named a legal rebel, I'm curious if there was something in 2009 that you were certain of that today you aren't? Hmm. That's a good question. No. What, what, well, I'm, I'm, of course, there are some things that I was certain of back then that, that uh, I'm not certain of now, but, but in, not in the context of what we're talking about. I believed when I took over that the world was at a time of change. The changes then were, were, uh, different. There were earlier elements of change in an evolution, but the locations of the law firms, how the law firms were competing with each other, uh, the way they were assembling resources to compete with each other at the kind of high end of the resource chain, the expensive end of the resource chain, uh, was changing. And I felt it was absolutely essential that law firms that wanted to flourish 10 years, 20 years out, take stock of that and adapt their models to um, prepare them to compete in a changing world. So part of that was high-end, from the expense of resource uh, side, building out new locations and new practices and, and bringing on uh, veteran uh, lawyers, established market-leading lawyers to lead practice areas that we were expanding geographically and in 
practice and industry sector uh, specialties. And, and that's something almost everybody was doing. And the firms that now are leading, other than firms that have deliberately remained smaller and more focused, uh, that's what they did to get to where they are. And that's how we have so many billion-dollar-plus revenue law firms. And so we all saw that coming. You know, it's it's sometimes uh, it's, it's important to remember that it was not that long ago that law firms were regional, and there were very few law firms that had practices that extended very far from their geographic place of origin. And in today's world, there are now a large number of firms that that are genuinely multi-location with significant presences in different locations, significant penetration of regional markets. And that all happened, a lot of it happened during the the early years that I was um, at Oric. The part that I also believe then and believe now that is was right is that uh, law firms could do so much better at assembling resources as they go about delivering legal service so that they could deliver legal service in a way that's more efficient, that incurs less cost, that puts less pressure on their the fee levels that they have to charge uh, while still delivering the quality and responsiveness that the market wants and while delivering uh, an adequate return and income for their partners. There was so much progress to make, even in 1990, but today there's dramatically more progress to be made. There's also uh, dramatically more pressure from the market to make that progress, but there's much more progress to be made because of the advance of technology um, and because, and including very importantly, because of the learning that can be extracted from these large data sets that the law firms have and that, and that exist beyond the law firms. And because over the last five years, 10 years, we've learned a lot about process design and the application of process design uh, to uh, thinking about how law firms could deliver legal service uh, that is uh, better for all concerned. And I think, I think that's where we're headed. I think the destination to which we are headed at a pace that will be determined in a, in a sequence of events that will be determined is to a day when, uh, when we do deliver legal service in a way that's better for everybody, for clients, for lawyers, for other professionals who work in legal service, uh, and for society. So that's interesting that you talk about there's more progress to be made now because of the changing nature of technology and just general knowledge in the field. I'm curious to know, since you've been at this for a while uh, and were one of the original adopters of a lot of these ideas, what dumbfounds you about legal services today? Well, um, uh, some number of things do. I'm surprised uh, that law firms the largest law firms are able to continue raising their rates uh, every year. I'm surprised that that uh, there's been such strong economic performance in recent years uh, without much change in the fundamental models of the law firms uh, because of all the pressures we know are in the marketplace. I think I understand it, but I'm still and I, I'm happy to talk about it. But I'm uh, I'm still surprised 
that it's moving in the way that it is. Although the, the averages can be misleading. So the averages of billing rates, the averages of the compensation of partners can mislead a reader of the data uh, because within the market, there are uh, individuals and firms that are not faring better, uh, but on average, uh, they are. Those things surprise me. I'm surprised that a little bit too, that um, other than clock, the client community has not been more uh, assertive about the business models of the law firms uh, than they have been, because it's so obviously part of why uh, legal service uh, is as expensive and cumbersome as it continues to be. Before we move on, we'd like to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. The Insights from the Edge podcast series brings you the latest legal trends as inside attorneys sit down with industry experts. Stay informed on the latest topics, including our latest episode on five ways to identify the best AI. Check out this episode on the legal current from Thomson Reuters to learn how to evaluate AI solutions to ensure you have the best tools for your legal research. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionist. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One's available 24 7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800 Answer One or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. That's answer the number one.com. And we're back. I'm here talking with Ralph Baxter, 2009 Legal Rebel recipient. So shifting topics a little bit, in the last election cycle, you ran in the Democratic primary for the first congressional district in West Virginia. And I'm curious to know if you think there are lessons from your time at ORIC and working through legal process improvement generally that you think lawmakers in D.C. would benefit from. Well, absolutely. Uh, first of all, let me say that I've been having a wonderful time since uh, leaving the role as a, a leader of a large law firm doing all of the different things that I've done, but, but nothing uh, was more energizing than uh, running for Congress, even though it, it had a disappointing outcome. I, I loved every uh, minute of it. Yeah, I think that um, a lot, there are a lot of uh, a lot of lessons from leading law firms that have, that apply in the world of politics. For one thing, if you're effective at this, you learn how to lead, to to make uh, law firms work, to achieve progress in a law firm. Uh, you can't compel results. You need to lead uh, the lawyers and lead the other professionals to do things differently. And that means expressing a vision and uh, developing a consensus uh, among uh, independent people to go in the same direction. And that's certainly what we need to do uh, in politics. And it's something we're not doing very well at all uh, in government in the United States at the moment. 
So, I mean, we've talked about a lot of different issues today. And in your career, you've covered everything that I've seen online from diversity in hiring to improving client experience and service delivery to even changing uh, the law firm business model. I'm curious, as you survey the profession today and the conversations that you're having and you're seeing others have, what do you think is catching steam right now that will become commonplace over the next decade? That's a really good question. I I think the best answer to that question is something you started with. It's going to become progressively more commonplace that everyone expects change, and that will make it more likely that the change will occur. But it, it's one of the sort of defining characteristics right now of the market that everybody thinks change is just around the corner. And when they say that, the people who do say that mean really fundamental change. Even the most senior lawyers believe that. And I think that will uh, become its own prophecy that fulfills itself because, well, it's so different from the way law has thought about itself from the days that I was in law school. We were taught to do everything according to precedent, to look backward and repeat what was done in the past. But that said, there needs to be a sincere grasp and appreciation of the need to change the fundamental models with which we are operating. What, what, there are two principal uh, elements, I think, that stand in the way of real change. One is the uh, set of barriers to entry that exist in most jurisdictions so that uh, people who are truly innovative have a hard time getting in the game. And the other is this set of models that make up modern or current law firms, the way the law firms think about their service, how they think about the, the, the way to construct the service model to the client, the way they assemble resources with such expensive resources with multi-million dollar partners and associates at very high levels of compensation, very high uh, use, uh, very expensive space and, and a lot of square feet per lawyer uh, and all of those things. Um, the way they think about their financial model, thinking about it all based on the billable hour and on uh, how high the income of partners is. And that's what really drives the model of the big law firms in the United States. Instead of thinking about it in terms of real cost, real revenue, an acceptable level of profit, uh, and so on. And then uh, the pricing model, which is partly part of the same thing, but the pricing model, all based on inputs. Uh, and still, even with way more alternative fee arrangements, it, the model still fundamentally is about how much time did we spend on it, and what kind of a fee does that generate, and how much of a discount can the client demand? And then maybe as important as anything, the outlook about investment. All the great businesses of the world are constantly investing. They're constantly taking some of the income that they could put into dividends or uh, compensation to the people that work in the enterprise and taking that money and putting it to work for the future and foregoing present distribution of, uh, of those resources, of those, of those uh, dollars or pounds or euros 
to the individuals and and investing them in the future. And law needs to do much more of that. Every major law firm should be um, should establish a, a percentage of its income that it's going to devote to making a better tomorrow and making the investments that get there. And that doesn't mean just investments in hardware and and, and technology and so on, although that's a big part of it, but it means investment in experimenting, trying things that uh, won't necessarily be profitable uh, or even successful uh, in the near term, but doing it because that's what you need to do in order to come up with better ideas for the future. Well, it sounds like if we do a 20th anniversary version of this podcast, we're going to have a lot to talk about and where your battles are fought on on those various fronts. Ralph, thank you very much for joining me. This was my pleasure, Jason. Thank you for having me. Ralph Baxter was the CEO and chairman of Oric from 1990 to 2013 and one of the ABA Journal's inaugural Legal Rebels. I'm Jason Taché, and this is the Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.